Great, we'll please stand for the reading. The reading tonight is from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed him were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him. Saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Be seated. The next song will be And Can It Be. And can it be that I should gain an interest in my Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused this pain? For me who scorned his perfect love? Amazing love, how can And this evening is going to be above all. <clears throat> above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all creation. 
song will be just as I am. Good evening. Good to be together tonight. Appreciate you being here tonight. Appreciate Seth leading us in singing Appreciate that last song that we sang together. Above all, that's the reason that we're here tonight. That's the reason we're able to be in an assembly like this one. The one who is above all being crucified for us. We're continuing to look at the story 
of his life. We're continuing to walk throughout the Gospel of Mark tonight. We're going to look at a pretty big chunk in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 52. So if you turn with me there, we're going to be studying in the 10th chapter of the Gospel of Mark. And together we're going to be looking at three different stories in verses 17 through 52. If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to get it out and follow along with me in Mark the 10th chapter. If you had the opportunity to be with us last week, whenever we had the chance to be together on Sunday night, we spent some time in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16, talking about how we are to receive the kingdom of God like children. Remember the story that we find in verses 13 through 16 of Mark chapter 10, where parents are bringing their infants to Jesus so that Jesus will lay his hands on them and pray for them. The disciples tried to stand in the middle. The disciples tried to turn them away. The disciples rebuked the parents. But we see Jesus' response in verse number 14. Jesus, when He saw it, He was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to Me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What is our responsibility? How are we supposed to receive the kingdom? How are we supposed to live our lives as we mature in our faith and we mature in our relationships with God? We are to receive the kingdom like children. Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to those who are like children. If we don't receive the kingdom of God like children, Jesus says we cannot enter it. What does that mean? What does it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Perhaps you could give a number of different answers to that in our society, in our culture, but when you go back to the first century context, we talked about last week how it's all about this word, the word dependence. Children, particularly the infants who are being brought to Jesus in Mark chapter 10, they are dependent on their parents for everything. They are dependent upon their parents for life. Jesus says in the very same way as followers of His, we are to be dependent upon our Heavenly Father. We are to live our lives completely and utterly dependent on God. But then let's take that a step further. What does that look like? What does it look like to actually do that? To actually live that out on a daily basis? What does it look like to receive the kingdom like a child? What does it look like to be completely and utterly dependent upon the Lord? I believe we find the answer to that question in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 52, in the three stories that Mark presents to us. Isn't it interesting how this text is arranged? That Mark tells us what to do. We're to receive the kingdom like children. We are to be dependent upon our Heavenly Father. But then he continues on throughout the rest of the chapter to say, let me show you what that looks like. Let me show you what it looks like to actually live dependent on the Father. And so let's walk throughout these three stories together and think about these three ideas. Number one, if we're going to live a dependent life, if we're going to be dependent on God, then we have to be willing to make sacrifices for God. That comes from the first story in Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31, where Jesus has an interaction with a man we oftentimes call the rich young ruler. Because of his position, because of his great wealth, he would have been a very powerful, he would have been a very influential person. But notice what he's doing in verse number 17. 
he runs to Jesus and kneels down before him. That's a pretty powerful scene just in and of itself. Here's a man of great wealth. Here's a man of great power and authority. Yet he's bowing at Jesus' feet and he asks a question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Pause right there. We're talking about dependence. Who is the rich young ruler dependent on? Just based on that question, is his eternity dependent on himself or is his eternity dependent upon God? He's talking about himself, isn't he? Good teacher, what do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? It seems that's something that he's placing on his shoulders, even though I think that this question comes from a good heart. Jesus responds to him by pointing to the definition Pointing to the foundation of goodness. I think that Jesus preemptively takes the rich young ruler's mind and the rich young ruler's attitude and he responds to him accordingly. The rich young ruler would have had a certain definition of goodness. More than likely in his mind, we'll see a little bit later, he thought of himself as good. Seeing Jesus as just a teacher, that was his perspective on Jesus more than likely. He saw Jesus as being good. Jesus is certainly not denying his own goodness. He's not denying his own perfection. But from the rich young ruler's perspective, he says you need to recognize what good actually is. That there's only one who's good, and that's God. But then we take that a step further. If you want to enter into life, then you need to keep the commandments. Jesus quotes Five of the Ten Commandments, the last five from Exodus 20 or Deuteronomy chapter 5 that have to do with a person's relationship with another person. You could have seen the rich young ruler's eyes light up. You could have heard the excitement in his voice in verse number 20. Teacher, all of these I've kept from my youth. Jesus, if if you're giving me a checklist here about what I need to do to inherit eternal life, I've checked all the boxes. I've done all of these things, not just over the last couple months, but I've always done these things. I've obeyed those commands from the time that I was a little kid. Jesus says something pretty hard to him, doesn't he? Verse number 21, Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him, Pause. Is it possible to love somebody but still offer them some pretty hard truths? Is it possible to love somebody but then call them to do some pretty difficult things? That's what Jesus does. Jesus looks at the rich young ruler and He feels such a love for him in His heart. But then He tells him, you lack one thing. I'm on the gravy train to heaven. I've done all these things since I was a little kid. No, there's still one thing you lack. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Pretty difficult commands. Sell everything that you have, give it to the poor, come and follow me. Why did Jesus tell him to do that? I think we see it in the next verse, verse number 22. Disheartened by the saying, the rich young ruler went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. I believe Jesus calls on him to get rid of his possessions. Jesus calls on him to give it to the poor because that's what he was prioritizing over God. That was his number one priority in life. So Jesus says if you really want to be perfect, if you really want to inherit eternal life, you still lack one thing. You need to make some sacrifices. You need to sacrifice what you're prioritizing in your life in order to prioritize God and follow after me. The rich young ruler wasn't willing to do it. Which gives Jesus a perfect opportunity to teach a general truth that it's very difficult for rich people 
to enter into the kingdom of heaven. To enter into or inherit the kingdom of God. Not impossible, but difficult. In the city of Jerusalem, I read a couple different writers that said there was a gate that was called the Eye Needle Gate. It was very low to the ground. In order for camels to get through the gate, they had to take all the baggage off of its back. The camel had to get down on its knees, and just then it was barely able to get underneath the gate. It's difficult to go underneath the gate. Not impossible, but challenging. And Jesus says it's the same way for those who are rich in this world. It's difficult for rich people to enter into the kingdom of God. Not impossible, but challenging. Because possessions make sacrifice difficult. A lot of wealth, a lot of possessions make what we're talking about in this point very difficult to do. It gives a lot more to prioritize over the Father. And so as Jesus presents that general truth, the disciples were exceedingly astonished in 26, and they said to Him, who can be saved? If you require us to make these kind of sacrifices and you require us to let go of all these things in order to prioritize the Father, who can be saved with those kind of requirements? Those kind of sacrifices? Jesus' response is powerful. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You're going to try to make these sacrifices on your own, just you. It's going to be really difficult for you to do. It's going to be impossible for you to do. But when God is on your side, all things are possible. That spurs up a thought in Peter's mind. Someone who's always very quick to speak. Peter, in verse number 28, began to say to him, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus, we did what the rich young ruler failed to do. We were willing to make those sacrifices. We were willing to leave everything in order to follow in your footsteps. Jesus responds to him by saying, yes, I recognize that and there's going to be a reward. Whenever you sacrifice something for God, you always receive back a lot more than what you sacrifice. And that's what Jesus tells them, pointing towards the fact that one day they're going to be able to spend an eternity in the presence of God. But if we were to take that story that we just summarized and boil it down to one point, if we're talking about being dependent on God, then we have to be willing to make sacrifices for God. Imagine that you were in the rich young ruler's position. You see Jesus. Whenever you see Jesus, if you were to see Jesus, how would you respond to that? Maybe you would be like the rich young ruler and, and you would come and, and fall down at Jesus' feet and ask the question, what do I need to do to spend an eternity with you? What do I need to do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds by saying, well, what does the Scriptures teach? You need to believe in who I am. You need to be willing to make a confession and to confess that belief in who I am. You need to be willing to repent of your sins and to be baptized in the, in, in the waters of baptism. You need to be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. And then you need to continue to live a faithful life. And maybe as you're going through that, you're going, check, check, check. All these things I've kept. All of these things I've done. But then Jesus says, not so quick. There's still one thing that you lack. What is that one thing in your life? What is the one thing that you're lacking? What is that one thing that you're prioritizing above your relationship with God? If Jesus were to call on you to let go of that, would you be willing to do it? 
Would you be willing to sacrifice that in order to follow Jesus? If Jesus were to come to you or He were to come to me and He would decide, hey, you're lacking one thing. I need you to make this sacrifice in order to fully follow me. Would you walk away sorrowful like the rich young ruler? Or would you make the changes that need to be made? I'm not saying that sacrifice is easy. Sacrifice is difficult. I think that's inherent in the term. But whatever we sacrifice for God always ends up being worth it. Whenever we make sacrifices for God, we always receive back from Him a lot more than we were willing to sacrifice. Ultimately, thinking about an eternity with God. Ultimately, thinking about eternal life like Jesus talks about in Matthew, or rather Mark chapter 10, verses 29 through 31. It's difficult for me to make these sacrifices. It's going to be impossible if you do it on your own. But when you have God on your side, all things are possible, Jesus says. If you want to be dependent on Him, you have to be willing to make sacrifices for Him. Number two, if we want to be dependent upon the Lord, then we need to live with the mindset of humility. We need to be humble according to verses 32 through 45 of Mark chapter 10. As we read in our scripture reading, for the third time now in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is revealing to His disciples, this is what I'm going to go through. Let me remind you where we're going. We're going to Jerusalem. Why are we going to Jerusalem? Jesus says in 33, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They're going to condemn Him to death and deliver Him over to the Gentiles. Talking about the Romans. We get more detail here. And they will mock Him and spit on Him and flog Him and kill Him. And after three days, He will rise. I want you to make sure we understand what we're doing here. I want to make sure that you understand where we're going. We're going to Jerusalem, but it's not because we're establishing this earthly kingdom. It's not because we're going to overthrow the Romans and we're going to fight against the Romans and we're going to wage war against the Romans. We're going to Jerusalem because I'm going to die and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to be flogged and spit on and then on the third day I'm going to be raised. Jesus is going to Jerusalem with a mindset of humility. Like we just read, or like we just sang a few moments ago, He's thinking about us above all. He's not arrogantly thinking about Himself or arrogantly doing what He wants to do. Jesus in humility goes to Jerusalem because He's thinking about us. The humility that defines the path to the cross is not shared by two of His disciples, James and John, when you look at verse number 35. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, they approach Jesus with a request, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Now that's the wrong attitude, isn't it? Does that strike you as as the wrong attitude to have? Instead of walking up to Jesus and saying, hey, we want you to do whatever we ask of you, they should have said, we want to do whatever you ask of us. But that's not what they're saying. Jesus entertains the conversation. What do you want me to do for you? And they made a request. Remember, they're they're picturing this great earthly kingdom that's going to come. And with an earthly kingdom is going to come an earthly government. So James and John asked Jesus, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left hand in your glory. Whenever you establish this kingdom and this finally happens and we overthrow the Romans, can we have the best positions Can one of us sit on your right hand and the other sit on the left hand? Can we have the positions of most authority? 
Jesus has a back and forth with them where first he points out their their ignorance and he questions them. Are you going to drink the cup that I drink? Are you going to be immersed with the immersion that I'm going to be immersed with? In other words, are you capable of going through the suffering that I told you about just a few verses ago? And they said, we're able to do it. He said, one day you're going to do it. One day you're going to suffer like me, but these positions that you're talking about are not mine to give. They are for those for which it has been prepared. Those who it has been prepared for, I think we're going to see them in just a few minutes. It's those who are humble. Those who live in humility. If you want to be first, then you become last. If you want to be the greatest, if you really want to have these positions on the right and left, then live a life of humility. But that's getting a little bit before where we are right now. Notice in 41, that when the ten heard about what James and John did, how did they respond? They were indignant. They were angry. You know, when I read this text for the first time as a teenager and I I really thought about it, I viewed the disciples in a pretty good light. That they're angry here and, and this is a righteous indignation because they knew that James and John shouldn't have asked for that. They'd been over this before. The more that I read it, the more that I think that's not what's on the apostles' mind. Here, the other ten apostles are mad at James and John for making this request. Why? Because they want those positions too. They want to be at the right hand and the left hand too. They want to have the positions of most authority as well. James and John just beat them to the punch. James and John were just a little bit more bold to actually go ahead and ask. And that makes them mad. You can imagine how they were bickering with one another. Once again, a teaching moment for Jesus. Hey, you look out at the world. The world leaders, they're large and in charge and they make sure that you know it. They rule with an iron fist. They lord over those who they're commanding of. It's not going to be that way with you. You want to talk about having the positions of of most authority in my kingdom? Look out at the world. My kingdom's not going to be like that. If you want to be the greatest, then you become a servant. If you want to be a first, then go out and serve people. He says, become a slave of all. In context, probably talking about both Jews and Gentiles there. You're going to be a slave of each person that you meet. Who modeled that idea of humility and and that idea of service perfectly? Verse 45, it's Jesus. For the Son of Man, I'm asking you to become a servant. I'm asking you to serve people because the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. If you want to know what it looks like to be a servant, Jesus says, look at me. Look at my example. Look at the reason. Look at the purpose that I'm here to serve other people. What's the greatest way in which Jesus has served people? Keep reading in 45. And to give His life as a ransom for many. The greatest way that Jesus has served us is giving His life to be the ransom payment. To liberate us. To set us free from the slavery of our sin. Jesus says, I want you to follow in my footsteps. I want you to live in humility. I want you to be humble. Serve each person that you meet in the footsteps of the one who came not to be served, but to serve. If we want to be dependent on God, it's going to take some humility. Do you really want to live that kind of life? Do you really want to be dependent upon the Father? It's going to take what Jesus is talking about here. So often in arrogance, we think that we can stand on our own two feet. In our pride, we want the best positions for ourselves. In our pride and arrogance, anyone 
who seems to be threatening us like the apostles in this section of Scripture, we fight back against. Jesus teaches us to do something different. To live in humility. To follow in His footsteps. It takes humility to say, God, You know more than I do. God, You're more powerful than I am. You're greater than I am. And instead of thinking that I have everything figured out, I'm going to put my life in Your hands. And I'm going to completely and utterly depend upon You. If we're going to be dependent upon God, that's the kind of mindset it takes. A mindset that says, I'll give up anything if it's going to get in the way of my relationship with God. A mindset that says, I recognize that I'm going to be a servant and I'm going to be a slave of all following in the footsteps of Jesus. And then finally, number three, if we're going to be dependent on God, we have to have faith in God. We have to place our trust in Him. This is story number three in verses 46 through 52. Jesus is entering into the city of Jericho. And the Bible says that as He was entering into Jericho, He was surrounded by a great crowd. In that crowd, we zoom in on one individual named Bartimaeus. He's a blind beggar. Well, he stands in contrast with who we saw just a few verses ago, the rich young ruler who's wealthy and powerful and influential. Here's someone who's not only blind, but because he's blind, he's a beggar on the side of the street. Of course, he can't see what's happening. And so he asks what all the commotion is. Someone tells him that Jesus of Nazareth is entering into town. And notice he started crying out, verse 47, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And that's something he continually did. He kept crying out, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. The crowd surrounding him was trying to make him be quiet. They were trying to rebuke him and trying to silence him. He wouldn't be silenced. It's like whenever you're out in public, maybe you've experienced this before, and a kid is, is throwing a fit, the more that the parent tells him to be quiet, what happens? The louder they get, the louder they cry, the louder they throw the fit. That's the same thing here. They're telling him he needs to be quiet. The more they tell him he needs to be quiet, the louder he gets. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Did he? Jesus, in verse number 49, stopped in the midst of this great crowd and said, call him. Isn't it amazing to think that Jesus was willing to stop and focus in on a blind beggar? Surrounded by no telling how many people from different walks of life, he's willing to stop in his tracks and say, I, I want to talk to him. Bring him over here. And so that's exactly what they did when he gets the opportunity to come to Jesus. Verse 50, he throws off his cloak. He sprang up. He has a sense of urgency. He came over to Jesus. And in 51, he asked him the same question that he asked James and John just a few verses ago. What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man very clearly and confidently and boldly made his request. Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Now go back and look at Bartimaeus for just a second. He's crying out at the top of his lungs, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. He's calling Jesus the Son of David. That's a term that was associated with the Messiah. He recognizes who Jesus is. Even though he can't see Jesus, he's calling out for Jesus. And when Jesus gives him the opportunity, he doesn't wait around for a few minutes. He immediately runs to Jesus, springs up and runs directly to Jesus, falls down before Jesus. What do you call all of that? You know what Jesus called it? 
He called it faith. In verse 52, Jesus said to him, go your way, your what? Your faith has made you well. And that's exactly what happened. Immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. If we're going to be dependent upon God, then we have to be willing to place our faith in God. We have to trust in God even in the midst of very difficult situations. None of us are blind beggars on the side of the street, but that doesn't mean that we don't have our difficulties in life. All of us have different points where we struggle. All of us have different trials that keep us up at night. In the midst of those trials, how do we respond? In the midst of those trials, what do we do? Do you think we could learn a lesson from Bartimaeus? To cry out to Jesus? Even though I can't see Him, I know He's there. Jesus, Son of David, I know who You are. You're the Christ. You're the Messiah. You're the Son of God. You're the One who is above all. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And He doesn't respond, but we don't quit. To keep crying out and to keep crying out with intensity and urgency. Knowing that Jesus can give the healing and the peace and the comfort that we're looking for. Jesus is one who is worthy of our faith. Jesus is one who is worthy of our trust. Maybe you know some people in your life. You, I wouldn't trust them with anything. I, I, I wouldn't trust them with anything in my life. Jesus is not one of those people. We can place our faith in Him. He is dependable. If Jesus can open the blind eyes of Bartimaeus, I'm confident that He can address and I'm confident that He can take care of the problems that we face on a daily basis. So place your faith in Him. Trust in His power, love, and capability. If you want to receive the kingdom, Jesus says you have to do it like a child. Which is the idea of dependence. I think that's the idea that floats to the surface. We need to learn to be dependent on God. How can we do it? Here are three ideas that we can take right off the page and apply to our lives. That if we want to be dependent on God, we have to make sacrifices for God. I'm going to get rid of anything that could hinder my relationship with Him. If we want to be dependent on God, we have to live in humility. We have to recognize our need for God and go out and live as servants following in the footsteps of Jesus. If we're going to be dependent on God, then we have to trust Him. We have to place our faith in Him and in His power to heal and to provide, to bring peace and to bring comfort. Are you living a life right now that is dependent upon God? Or are you trying to stand on your own two feet? Think about that question as together we stand and sing our song of encouragement.